You are listening to Primary Care Perspectives, a podcast where pediatric experts from Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and other guests discuss primary care issues that are on their minds and the hot topics that all pediatricians see affecting their daily practice. This podcast is for general informational and educational purposes only and is not to be considered as medical advice for any particular patient. Clinicians must rely on their own informed clinical judgment in making recommendations to their patients. Hi, I'm Dr. Katie Lockwood, a primary care pediatrician at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and today I'm talking about ADHD medication management. Joining me is Dr. Katrina Fletcher, who's an attending physician in the Pediatric Health and Behavior Clinic and Pennsylvania's Telephonic Psychiatric Consultation Service in the Department of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. She's also an assistant professor of clinical psychiatry at the Perlman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania, an associate director of behavioral health education in the Pediatric Residency Program at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and Program Director of the Post-Pediatric Portal Program at Children's Hospital Philadelphia. Many titles, and we are very excited to have you here. So welcome, Dr. Fletcher. Thank you so much, Dr. Lockwood. Well, I work with you on the behavioral health education curriculum for the pediatric residency program, and ADHD medication is a topic that comes up all the time, as well as with our primary care providers who are building experience in this area. We've got some providers who feel very comfortable with ADHD med management, but others who are just dipping their toe in the water. So I think this will be good for both sides with a little bit of review and a little bit of what's new. So let's just start with sort of the big picture of talking about ADHD management. We're focusing on medications today, but we both know that there are a lot of other ways that ADHD is managed. So let's start with what is the evidence-based treatment for ADHD by age. So when are we using medications first line versus when are we using behavioral interventions? And then when are they being used together? It's a great place to start when thinking about ADHD. So when you think about your very young children, so four to five-year-olds, typically you're going to be starting with behavioral interventions and only thinking about medications if there's no improvement with a sustained trial of behavioral interventions. Once you get into the more six to 11-year-old groups so and more school-age children, medications become much more utilized in this age group. This is a, mm-hmm. the age in which kids are expected to sit still longer, focus longer, academic demands are increasing. However, behavioral interventions are still very, very helpful in this age group as well. Mm -hmm. And so combination treatment is really favored. And like Dr. Lockwood said, I'm going to digress a little bit as a psychiatrist and say that I strongly believe in the importance and effectiveness of behavioral interventions for ADHD as well as other mental health diagnoses. And when thinking about ADHD behavioral interventions, they're particularly helpful in younger children if the child or adolescent is demonstrating significant emotional dysregulation or behavioral outbursts Mm -hmm. in the context of their ADHD. So again, combination treatment is really, really important. And often the interventions at this age are more parent-focused and helping parents be more effective in their parenting strategies with a child who has ADHD. And then once you start getting into the teenage age group, medications really become the mainstay of medication. Some of those behavioral interventions that we utilize in younger children that are more parent-focused often are less effective in teenagers just because 
teenagers tend to listen less to their parents. Um, but that being said, there still are um, behavioral interventions that can be really helpful in this age group, depending on the symptomatology. So potentially interventions focusing more on organization skills or executive functioning skills. And then also thinking about if there's any comorbid psychiatric diagnoses like anxiety and depression that may be exacerbating their ADHD symptoms. It's important to also think about treating those potentially by therapeutic interventions as well. That's a great overview. So behavioral interventions, good at any age, but particularly for preschoolers, once we hit school age, we're kind of doing combo treatment and then in the teens, focusing a little bit more on medications. But again, behavioral interventions could happen at any time. We'll be focusing a little bit more on medications specifically for this podcast. So once we decide that a medication is needed for ADHD, stimulants are the first line. But within that category, we have methylphenidate and amphetamines. So how do we decide which one to start? Is there a difference? So absolutely, the stimulants are considered first line based on the, the evidence in the literature about safety and efficacy. And this is this was really based from the seminal study, which was the multimodal treatment of ADHD study, also known as the MTA study, which was originally published in 1999. And there's been subsequent follow-up studies uh, published from this population since that time. And really, um, the MTA study showed the, the safety and efficacy of, of stimulants in young people with ADHD. In terms of class difference, though, between the amphetamines and methylphenidates, not really, except in the very young. So if you're looking at the very young, again, preschool age, if behavioral interventions fail and you want to think about medications, the American Academy of Pediatrics strongly recommends considering IR methylphenidates before IR amphetamines, again, based on the strongest evidence of safety and efficacy in the preschool group with the IR methylphenidate. So it's in the very young population, typically you're, I would recommend thinking about the IR methylphenidates first based on the AAP recommendations. Otherwise, deciding between the class is going to depend on different factors. I typically will ask about family history and ADHD often runs in families. So you may have families that say, everyone in our family responds to the amphetamine class or the methylphenidate class, or we don't do well on this class. So, you know, that can really help you choose which class you may want to start with. But there's no clear evidence that one class is better than the others, other, like than I said, for, for the very young. Another reason you may favor one class over the other or one stimulant over the other is depending on the short or long-acting formulations and what kind of formulations that they have. Many younger patients can't swallow pills, mm -hmm. and most of the extended-release formulations, at least the older extended-release formulations, are pills. And so if a child can't swallow pills, thinking about some of the other formulations such as liquids, chewables, patches, dissolvable liquids, sprinkles that may help actually get the medication into the child. So that might point you one stimulant versus another. That's great. The availability and how the patient is going to be taking the medication are great things to consider in making that choice. I think you called out a really important topic, though, that I just want to highlight, which is that that MTA study is from 1999. And a lot of times we have patients who are worried about safety. And we'll talk a little bit about how we talk to families about medications. But this is an important call out just that we have many, many decades at this point of research to emphasize the safety here. Mm -hmm. We do. And, and again, like I said, there have been subsequent follow-ups of the MTA study of the, the same children mm -hmm. kind of followed over the years and they published that data as well, looking at the safety of these medications over, over the years. And again, 
stimulants have continued to demonstrate that they are safe and effective while treating ADHD. Obviously, there are side effects that you can potentially see with any medication, most significantly being appetite suppression and weight loss, as well as sleep disruption. And particularly for younger children, absolutely needing to watch their growth Mm -hmm. carefully. And that can be rate limiting in terms of how you titrate the stimulant. But again, they are overall safe and effective medications and can really make a difference in helping patients with ADHD. Definitely. So once we pick our stimulant, how do we titrate the dose? When should we do our first follow-up and what data are we using to determine if a dose titration is needed? So here I will say there's probably a lot of clinical variability in how clinicians practice. Mm -hmm. And so I can only speak probably more for myself and how I do this. And some of it's based on my own personal experience and how my own schedule is set up, which as a psychiatrist is probably a little bit different in terms of the frequency that I can see patients. Typically when I'm starting a stimulant, I'm going to start at the lowest dose and titrate up depending on side effects and, and obviously response. The nice thing about stimulants is they do show pretty rapid effect. So you can get a sense relatively quickly about the response. Mm -hmm. That being said, it's often challenging to get good quality data back from teachers, especially, as well as parents. And typically, I like to use Vanderbilt to get assessments from teachers and, and parents about how a child is doing on their stimulant because they're freely accessible. They're relatively short screening tools. Teachers tend to be pretty used to using the Vanderbilts, and so you can get good information from them. That being said, you can't ask a teacher to do Vanderbilt every two weeks. I mean, that's right. not practical. No teacher is going to be able to do that. And so typically what I think about doing is giving the teacher a few weeks, maybe two to four weeks to watch a child before asking them to do a repeat Vanderbilt. And again, part of the reason I I say a couple of weeks is because you're not looking for a snapshot in time. You really want to have a reflection of their overall trajectory. Everybody has good days and bad days or good weeks and bad weeks. Mm -hmm. And so you don't want to just focus on if they're having a really rough period to get just a reflection of that. You want to see how they're doing over a course of time. So usually I want to have at least a couple of weeks to see how that child is doing before making an adjustment. I personally see patients back after about four to six weeks. um, And at that point, we'll try and get Vanderbilt, reassess how their ADHD symptoms are responding and assess for side effects, particularly, again, like I said, watching for appetite suppression and weight loss, which you're not necessarily going to see within the first couple of weeks. You know, it does take a little bit of time to see any changes in weight, even if they're significant appetite suppression. And then I will titrate based on their symptom report. Absolutely, you can see a child back sooner if they're higher risk or you're more concerned about weight or blood pressure and you want to check in on them after a couple of weeks. Or if you're able to get good quality data back faster, you have an older adolescent and they're tolerating the medication fine after a couple of weeks and they're really seeing no benefits so far, absolutely you can titrate faster. Again, it kind of depends on the quality of the data that you're getting back and how much you trust it. And again, I tend to go a little bit slower in younger children just because of this weight effect. I want to make sure that they're tolerating it before I titrate up the medication. That's great. Those are great tips about how we use stimulants. But what about cases where stimulants aren't working? What are our other options? So absolutely, there are other classes of medications that we use to treat ADHD. The alpha agonists are a great group of medications that can be particularly helpful for hyperactivity and impulsivity symptoms. And this includes medications such as guanfacine or clonidine. 
And there are also the norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors. Also, I may call them the NRIs, mm-hmm. including atomoxetine and the newer medication, Viloxine. The other thing I would think about is, are the stimulants really not working or are they just not working enough? Mm-hmm. So for many of my patients who I have on stimulants, I've seen some benefits, but not enough. And I might be maxing out the dose or they have, I can't titrate the dose further because of, you know, their appetite is only just maintaining their weight. Um, and so for these patients, I often will use a combination. And particularly, I often use stimulants and alpha agonists together for combination type ADHD. And again, the other thing to think about is if stimulants aren't working or the, the stimulants aren't working enough, whether layering in non-pharmalogic options as well, focusing on organization and executive functioning skills. A lot of children with ADHD struggle with social interaction. So mm-hmm. social skills groups can be helpful. Parent management training or treating comorbid anxiety and other psychiatric diagnoses, depending on their symptoms, can also be really important. Yeah, I'm glad that you mentioned psychiatric comorbidities. I was just going to say that sometimes my patients who don't respond well to stimulants have comorbid either learning disabilities or things like anxiety and depression. So I always have that in the back of my mind when they're not responding like I thought they would to a stimulant to start screening for some of those comorbidities just to see if maybe instead of playing around with their stimulant or changing their ADHD medication, I should be thinking about alternative treatments of comorbidities. So thank you for bringing that up. Now, in the medications that you were just talking about, let's start doing a little bit of a deeper dive into the alpha-2 agonists first. So here we have short-acting and long-acting versions of guanfacine and clonidine. How do we decide which one we need? Absolutely. So there are short and long-acting formulations of both guanfacine and clonidine. And for both of these medications, the long-acting formulations are FDA-approved for children with ADHD, Mm -hmm. though the short-acting formulations are not. When thinking about these medications, the most significant side effects that you'll see with the alpha-2 agonists include bradycardia, hypotension, sedation, dry mouth, and rebound hypertension. So it's important to monitor heart rate and blood pressure after starting and titrating. But it's also important to know that clonidine is less specific to the frontal and limbic alpha-2 receptors, and therefore typically you will see more sedation, hypotension, and bradycardia Mm. than you will with guanfacine particularly if you're thinking about targeting daytime ADHD symptoms, guanfacine can often be a better choice because it has less of these side effects. The other important thing to know about a difference between clonidine and guanfacine is that clonidine has 10 times the affinity to the alpha-2 receptor. And so your dosing is going to be shifted by a decimal point. Mm. Um, So just be careful when you're writing your prescriptions for these medications, where you're putting your decimal point if you're prescribing clonidine versus guanfacine. Fascinating. When you're thinking about prescribing, for older children, typically you can start with the extended release formulations. Guanfacine extended release is typically considered a once a day medication lasting about 24 hours, Mm -hmm. though you can see variability in children and how they metabolize. And clonidine extended release is typically a twice a day medication lasting around 12 hours. So when you have a younger child or a more medically complicated child, often I will think about starting immediate release alpha agonist and making sure that they tolerate it and titrate it up and then potentially convert them over to an extended release Mm -hmm. formulation once they're on a more stable dose and their heart rate and blood pressure is doing okay. For short-acting guanfacine, this is typically dosed twice a day, and short-acting clonidine is quite short-acting. So you can dose it twice a day, but more typically, it's going to be a three times a day medication. So as you can imagine, this is challenging to dose during the school day. 
with a three times a day medication. So again, it depends on the age of the child and, and how concerned you might be about vulnerability that hypotension affects from these medications. Mm -hmm. But most older children, you can start on the extended release formulations. Those are great tips about alpha-2 agonists. Now, we also have the norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors or NRIs, as you said, like adamoxetine. I have some families who ask for these as first-line treatment because they don't want to use stimulants. What's the evidence for these and why aren't they first-line? So yes, the NRIs absolutely have evidence of efficacy with ADHD, but typically the response is not as robust as the stimulants for most patients. They tend to be more effective for the inattentive symptoms of ADHD and not as effective for the hyperactivity impulsivity symptoms, but mm -hmm. can be helpful with both. It really depends on the patient. Another positive of the MRIs is that typically you're going to see less appetite suppression and mood dysregulation then with the stimulants. But again, you still can see both of these effects with the NRIs as well as the stimulants. Also, the NRIs are not addictive and there's no risk of diversion. And so if there's concern about substance use, you know, the NRIs may be a good option for that patient. On the flip side, the NRIs do take a lot longer to see effect than the stimulants. The stimulants are pretty rapid effect, whereas the NRIs, you need to often titrate up for effect, and then it can mm -hmm. take up to four to six weeks to see full effect on any dose. The other thing is that the NRIs also have the same black box warning that you see on all medications that have any type of antidepressant properties, even though the NRIs are not considered antidepressant. And black box warning meaning that there is an increased risk of suicidal thoughts mm -hmm. on these medications. So absolutely something you would need to talk about with your families before starting NRIs and then monitor the patient for if they're on an NRI. And this is something they need to take every day, correct? Whereas the stimulants, you can do drug holidays, like some kids will stop taking them on summer break and things like that versus the NRIs they need to take daily. Absolutely. Yeah. These are really daily medications because of how they work. They really reach a, a steady state in your body and that's mm -hmm. how they're effective where absolutely the stimulants are much more on-off medications. You can take them when you need them and can be particularly helpful in patients that respond well to stimulants but are struggling a little bit more with weight loss so that they can have periods of time in which their appetite is not suppressed to help them maintain their weight. And that can't be done with the NRIs. Right. Well, thank you for that great overview of the medications that we use in ADHD. I'd love to now troubleshoot some of the common concerns that we hear in primary care. So the first one that I hear is about a patient who says their stimulant works well during the school hours, but then in the early evening, the child starts to have a lot of behavioral outbursts and irritability, and these really impact the home life. So what can we do in that situation? I think this could be maybe one of two things. Mm -hmm. The first thing is that this could be withdrawal from the stimulant. Sometimes you can see children have increased irritability behavioral outbursts as the stimulant is wearing off. Usually this is relatively short-lived, 30 to 90 minutes, and then that child will kind of return to their baseline. And in many situations, you don't necessarily need to do anything other than provide reassurance to the family that this is a wear-off effect. Um, if the child is returning to their baseline and if it's manageable for that 30 to 90 minutes, if it really seems really, really challenging for the family to navigate that time, you could think about a very low dose of IR stimulant to help smooth the transition off. Mm -hmm. 
However, then you run the risk of the stimulant bleeding more into the, the dinner time hours, and you obviously don't want to suppress their appetite at dinner. So certainly something just to keep in mind when you're trying this strategy, it should be very low dose, and you really do want it to be in the, the child system for as little as possible so it doesn't affect sleep and appetite in the evening. The other possibility is that the behavioral outburst in the evening is really the return of the ADHD. Mm-hmm. Remember that stimulants really are on-off medications. And the goal of stimulants is really to be most effective during the school day. And we want them to wear off mm-hmm. in the afternoon so that that doesn't affect bedtime and it doesn't affect dinner time. So obviously children who have ADHD will have ADHD symptoms in the evening. Right. Also remember that most people are tired at the end of their day and children are absolutely tired after a long school day. And so this can be a period of time of more conflict because parents are tired, children are tired, and there may be certain things going on at home, such as a child walks in the door, really wants to relax, and their parent's like, let's do your homework. And the children's like, no, and then freaks out. <laughs> so the first thing I would think about is, behavioral interventions. Are there things that you can do to structure the evening time that can make things better for that child and parents? Is it give the child a break when they come home so that then they can get into their schoolwork a little bit later? Will that decrease conflict? On the flip side, could it be that trying to get that homework done the moment they walk in the door while the stimulant's still a little bit in their system so that they don't need to then transition off of a fun activity back to schoolwork later. And this will depend on the child and depend on the family. But definitely behavioral interventions can help navigate some of these things in the evening. If you're still having significant difficulty, even with those behavioral interventions, this is where the alpha agonist could potentially be helpful. Mm -hmm. Either a short acting alpha agonist, if it's really exclusively just in the evening that a child is struggling, or if there's residual daytime symptoms, you may think about an extended release alpha agonist that can help smooth their entire day, such as guanfacine. Mm-hmm. Great. Now, another scenario that I hear about is a patient who is doing well on their stimulant for a year or so, and then things seem to worsen, maybe a new attention or behavior issue at school. So in this case, what do we do? So this kind of goes back to something that you said earlier, Dr. Locke, but this is where I would assess for possible new factors. Mm-hmm. If you have a child who's been doing well for a good period of time, you want to think about, is there something new going on? Or is there something that wasn't picked up on before, such as a psychiatric comorbidity, anxiety, depression that's emerging and impacting attention? Is there a learning disorder that didn't really come to light until a child got further on in school and and was being pushed more academically? Is there a new medical diagnosis that wasn't around before that now is impacting the child in a different way? Or are there new psychosocial stressors that, again, are impacting the child? Is there the parents, are they separating or divorcing? So there's a lot more tension in the home. And so it's hard for them to focus or there's more behavioral dysregulation. So things to think about. What else could be going on with this child that may have produced this change? Mm -hmm. If all of those things are not there, you know, you've done a thorough review and you really don't find anything else, then it could just be tolerance to the stimulant. Mm -hmm. And so you could try increasing the dose. And if they don't seem to have improved symptoms, even with an increased dose, then it might be time to switch to a different stimulant. Those are great points. And I love that we touched back again on the comorbidity issue. Now, what if you are titrating up your ADHD medication, and as you go up on your dose of the stimulant, you're not seeing any response? What should you do then? So 
very similar to the last question, but I would really take a step back first and assess your diagnosis. Do you think ADHD is really present if you have a child who's not responding to ADHD medication? Mm -hmm. If you do think the child has ADHD, then is there something going on? Just like the last question, is there a new psychiatric comorbidity, a learning disorder, a new medical diagnosis, or psychosocial stressors that may be impacting the child? And thinking about how to help treat those other kind of identified things along with the ADHD, whether that's through behavioral interventions, medication, medical workup or interventions, or school-based interventions can be really helpful. If you're not sure that the child has ADHD, then look for something else that may be causing those symptoms of inattention or emotion dysregulation. I have absolutely had patients in my practice who I've seen as teenagers who clearly have generalized anxiety disorder now that they're teenagers who said in the past they were diagnosed with ADHD, but actually when they were on treatment with stimulants, their symptoms got worse. So mm -hmm. that would be a good indication that maybe that child doesn't actually have ADHD mm -hmm. and that those inattention symptoms are actually being driven by something else. And I would add trauma to the list too of things to consider. Mm -hmm. I've seen a lot of patients who have been in foster care or had a history of abuse who demonstrated a lot of ADHD symptoms as they were experiencing trauma. And after some time of recovery, they actually had improvement in those symptoms. So trauma-informed care is always important as well. Absolutely. I fully agree with that. I think trauma is one of those areas that you can have symptoms that really present like anything. Mm -hmm. And so I think utilizing trauma-informed care and helping support patients, you can often see really significant improvements through behavioral interventions. Great. Well, there is so much more we could discuss here. I think you and I could both talk about this topic all day, but we <laughs> have covered a lot of ground already. And I want people to really remember some of the pearls that you gave us today. So what are your top takeaways for primary care pediatricians? Well, one thing that I haven't really said yet, but I think is really important is that ADHD can have significant impact on a child's development academically, socially, how the family functions and how they feel about themselves. And therefore, ADHD is really important to recognize and treat, even though the treatment, as we discussed, will vary for each child. And I think the other thing is, again, if a child is not responding the way you would expect them to, to ADHD treatment, really stop and take a step back and reassess if that child has ADHD and or are there other factors that could be impacting the treatment and then adjust your response based on what you find. Love those takeaways. So thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us today, Dr. Fletcher. And I know that I learned a lot today and I hope everyone else did too. Thank you so much, Dr. Lookwood, for having me. I had a wonderful time. Thank you for listening to this episode of Primary Care Perspectives. You can download and subscribe to future episodes on iTunes or visit chop.edu slash PCP podcast for a listing of all episodes. I look forward to our next chat.